This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, there have been quite a few times in the last, oh, 50, 60 years where it has been students and young people who have taken to the streets to protest a number of issues. Just take a look down in the United States, right? It was many young people who protested during the civil rights era. I think about the Vietnam War protests. That was a lot of young people. It was their lives. Their lives were on the line for the Vietnam War. They were the ones who made the difference in those protests. Now, did they all ask permission from their parents before they went out and protested? I'm guessing not. Uh, even in the 1980s, you saw all sorts of protests. I remember in high school, uh, some of the protests that were being organized at that time were the protest against apartheid in South Africa. Pretty sure there were no permission slips that went out for that one at that time. That if kids went, wanted to go, they went. So it's been an interesting discussion with these climate strikes that are happening today right across the country, especially involving kids in schools. Uh, lots of kids are going to be attending this, teenagers and so forth, uh, that that they've been given permission, uh, maybe by their parents, maybe by the schools, and this has turned into quite the discussion. So we were asking you for our hot question of the day today, if you are okay with this, are you okay with your child missing school to attend today's protest for action on the climate emergency? You go, yeah, it's their future. Let them attend if they want to. Or do you think, no, that's not okay? I had a couple of emails from people this week who said absolutely not. They were not happy with their child attending this and would not allow. One person said, I will not permit my teenager to go and do this. And I thought, well, at that age, can you really stop them from doing that? So that's our hot question of the day today. Are you okay with your child missing school to attend these protests today? If they are, you go, yep, it's their future. Or no, that is not okay with you. So go to Simi Sarah 980 to cast your vote on that. And that's where you'll find it on Twitter. You can also go to at CKNW. We have it there as well. You can email me your thoughts, Simi at CKNW.com. And you can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. And when you do, I want you to think back to your teenage years too. Like, I'm sure at some point, a lot of you got upset about something and wanted to protest something, but it was a different era. Did we go home and tell our parents we were going to do this? Did we go home and get permission from your parents to protest? I'm thinking back then, probably not in a lot of cases. Uh, So have we changed the rules for the kids today? Are you okay with your child going and protesting today if they are? Have you had this discussion? Let us know how that goes. Again, you can use our buzz line. You can email me, cast your vote on our hot question of the day. You'll find it at CKNW or at Simisera980. Well, let's talk about what is happening out there today. And there is a lot of attention being focused on the thousands of people uh, right across the country, but in particular, thousands of people across Metro Vancouver who are expected to take part in all sorts of different climate walkouts today. So let me run through some of the events that are happening, just so you know, even if you're not participating, that this is happening in your area. Now, the earliest uh, rally began this morning. It was at 6.30 a.m. We heard about uh, that from Gordon McDonald earlier. That was at the Pitt River Bridge between Port Coquitlam and Pitt Meadows. Uh, in New Westminster, well, people gathered at around 8 this morning. That was at Hayek Square. In Maple Ridge, they also had a morning rally there. It was about 8.30 at City Hall. Uh, right now, we're getting into the kind of bigger events. There's one happening at UBC where students are gathering outside the bookstore. 
that's going on right now. In fact, we'll check in on that in just a moment. SFU students are planning to meet at the Broadway City Hall Canada Line station. That's at 12.30. And then Surrey and North Delta, people are planning to meet at 2 o'clock. That is outside the Strawberry Hill Shopping Centre. As you know, if you go out in that area... That's a busy area, so watch out for that uh, this afternoon. So everyone is eventually planning to meet at Vancouver City Hall and then march across the Canby Street Bridge to downtown Vancouver. So let's find out how things are going. Our CKW contributor, Nikki Reitmeyer, has been out and about checking on the protests this morning, and she joins us now. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Simi. So first this morning, I went to City Hall to see if there was any action that was happening there yet. And as of 10 a.m., it was pretty quiet. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot going on outside of a few security guards who were getting ready for these big crowds that they're expecting later today. The official numbers we've been hearing are around 10 to 15,000 people expected, although the security guard that I spoke to said he was expecting 25,000 people to show up at City Hall today. Some of those people will be the students from UBC who are gathering right now on campus and planning to head starting at noon towards City Hall and they're hoping to get there for one o'clock so that's where I am now I'm at UBC I'm outside of the bookstore where that meetup is beginning okay and what are you seeing right now Uh, you said it seems a bit quiet but are people kind of heading to that area Yeah, you know, first impressions, I gotta say, I was expecting a really big crowd of people here, especially when you're talking about a student body, the type of people who generally are most interested in these types of initiatives, climate change, other sorts of rallies. I have to say it's a little bit quieter quieter here than what I first anticipated. Now, granted, I don't think that they've officially kicked off their rally quite yet, but so far there's only about 50 people who are milling about. There's a band that is set up, and they're going to play here in the next 5 or 10 minutes or so, and they even have a booth set up to help people organize transit to get into downtown Vancouver because they're planning both a bike convoy and a transit convoy. So the organization is here. They have tents set up, they have chairs, they have a band, they have a a bus route planned. The only thing that's not really here are the people. Right, and have you been chatting with anybody there as well? Yes, I spoke to a fellow who was holding a sign and he's going to be joining the protest. I asked him, what do you plan to accomplish today? For one, raise awareness. Yes, I get that there are classes to be had in the morning and whatnot, but here's the thing. If there is no earth, you won't have any classes to go to. So awareness would be a big thing. And then another thing would be, too, is that uh, our politicians and uh, corporate executives understand that uh, if they screw over everybody, they won't have an earth to live on to either in the pursuit of their profits. Like, for real. What are they thinking in terms of like, oh, even if the, even if like 99% of the earth were to fall apart, that's fine. We're going to live in a shelter with robots and seas and farms and everything. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, well, he clearly sounds very passionate about this, Nikki. <laughs> yeah, I think he's uh, I think he's passionate about it. I'm not sure uh, if he's totally hitting the mark with all of his comments. But, of course, <laughs> there's going to be varied levels of understanding with the student body here today at UBC and amongst all the other uh, activists that are out and about. Uh, of course, education is a big part of this, too. Yes. And I think that uh, as we are hearing more about climate change and climate change activism as a whole, as a population, we are learning more 
more about it and more about the repercussions of that too. So they are going to have some speakers who will be talking here today at UBC to really help inform the crowd as to what the concerns are around climate change and what exactly in a very concise and organized way uh, they expect to see from politicians. Okay, and so just run through me uh, for me again uh, what you expect to see happen today, how this is going to unfold. Yeah, so starting here at UBC, up to 11 o'clock is when they're encouraging people to come to the bookstore area outside the nest. I, of course, you're welcome to come after that as well. From 11 to noon, they'll have speakers here. And then at noon, they have a bike convoy that'll be traveling towards City Hall. So expect congestion on either Broadway or 4th or both and expect the buses to be very busy as well heading from the UBC area through Carisdale and then towards the Vancouver City Hall. In Surrey and North Delta there's going to be a meeting at 2 p.m. outside Strawberry Hill Shopping Centre and SFU students are also getting involved this afternoon. They plan to meet at Broadway City Hall at 12.30 so there's going to be lots of different groups coming from all over Metro Vancouver, UBC included, to arrive at City Hall. I think you can probably here, Simi Kenya yes. behind me, the noise, the party is beginning. Oh, I can hear. And there's a marching band walking towards Great. the site of the rally. So when we started this conversation, things were quiet. They're not anymore. All right. Well, listen, we'll let you go. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. I can't I even know if she properly heard me there because, as you can tell, the marching band has arrived. Clearly, the UBC protest just getting taken up a notch. You may have wondered how big this thing was going to be today. Like it had been previewed. We had talked about it, but now we're kind of getting an idea of how big it's going to be. Uh, lots of students and young people are expected to take part in this. Now, just on the Facebook uh, page alone for this thing, more than 10,000 people signed up to participate. Organizers, though, are hoping that they get more like 15,000 people. So that's just a prediction right now for how this could go. Students, uh, youth are expected to form the largest block because this was really directed at young people. Organizers, though, are encouraging adults to participate as well if they would like to. So today technically is a school day. How is that working with all the different school districts? Well, both Vancouver and Surrey have said uh, they actually made the announcement that students may miss class to attend if they have parental permission. Uh, what the other kind of larger Metro Vancouver districts acknowledged that these events are, are taking place and then told parents that they, you know, they can take their kids out of class as per regular policy. But that's also part of our hot question of the day, which I would advise you to check out. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So you've got Emily Carr and the Vancouver Film School. They just canceled classes outright and said you know what? Go participate. We expect a lot of people are going to. We're just not going to have classes today. UBC, SFU, and Capilano University told their students that they should, you know, talk to your professors, your teachers, if you plan to attend, and you guys figure that out amongst yourselves. Meanwhile, there's some businesses as well, you may have heard, who are actually closing their doors today in order to allow staff to participate. And we're talking about some high-profile BC-based businesses. Uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op, not open today because they are allowing their workers to also go and participate in this, encouraging them to do so. In fact, Lush Cosmetics doing the same. So no Lush stores open today. Nature's Path also saying they are closing operations for the day to allow staff to participate in this. 
And of course, with an election going on, as you can imagine, there's also lots of politicians who are deeply involved in this today. So you've got NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who is here in BC and will be marching actually in the Victoria protest in a few hours. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and Green Party leader Elizabeth May are both going to the uh, march in Montreal, which is taking part uh, very soon, actually, right about now they've started that. Uh, Meanwhile, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer is in BC today. I believe he's out in the Tri-Cities area, and he says he will not participate, although some of his candidates are participating in various climate marches across the Canada. Across Canada. So to let you know where things are moving, right, how is this going to impact you as you are going about your business today, uh, the protest does begin with this rally at Vancouver City Hall at 1 p.m., So a lot of these groups will be kind of congregating in that area in the early part of the afternoon. Then they're going to march across the Canby Street Bridge. Relatively big crowd, I would imagine, doing that. They're going to end at the intersection of Hamilton and West Georgia. That'll be right, they expect anyway, at around 5 o'clock. So... There are other groups in Metro Vancouver who are staging their events and then will be going to this Vancouver rally, as I mentioned, and that includes the rally that's happening in New Westminster, uh, North Vancouver's Capilano University, Kwantlen Polytechnic as well, same thing. Those students are going to be joining the Vancouver rally, but there are events going on everywhere. So UBC, Surrey, Chilliwack, I mentioned Victoria, that's where NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will be today. Kelowna has one going on, Penticton, Vernon, Whistler, Lillooet, Nanaimo, Port Hardy, Campbell River, Kitimat, Prince George, and Revelstoke are all planning these rallies today. Well, let's talk about this story in Toronto today, which I know there's a lot of interest in. For the first time since his arrest, we are hearing directly from the suspect in last year's deadly van attack in that city. A publication ban has been lifted on Alec Manassian's interrogation by police, which was just hours after that massacre on April the 23rd of last year that killed 10 people and injured 16 others. And the reaction so far as we've been hearing about in the news has kind of been mixed to this. So we wanted to explore more about why that is. So joining us now is Brianna Carnegie, your network producer for Global News Radio. Brianna, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This is a it's a tough topic though, isn't it? Because you don't really want to share too much of the audio because I don't I'm not sure people want to hear all of it. Exactly. And that's something that Global News really had to take into perspective when they were making editorial calls on this. And how much do we want to release? How much do we want to name him? It's really something you have to think about with incidents like this. But also you have to weigh out how much the public would want to know about this because they want to know why it happened. What started somebody's thoughts thinking that they would like to rent a van run it down one of the busiest streets in Toronto and allow it to collide with people. That's exactly what the judge had ruled released her decision to lift the publication ban on this interrogation video. And as you mentioned, today we're hearing those exact words the first time from Alec Manassian. And did we get some insight then on what made this person think about potentially doing this? 
We really did. And it, that's another editorial sense that we have to think about. And how much do we want to talk about that, right? Yeah. Um, it, what we heard from him and what he claims in the police interrogation video is that he had this sense, and a lot of people don't know these words or this lingo, and it's really something that we're picking up on and, and starting to learn ourselves as well, is the words around incel rebellion. Uh, there's a lot about, uh, you may have heard the words Chad's and Stacy. Um, right. And it, it's this, this move that Alec Manassian talks about um, of men that basically can't have a sexual relationship with women because women are choosing other men over them. Um, so one thing that we did learn from this police interrogation video that really stuck out and we didn't know before was that Alec Manassian claims he had direct online contact with another mass shooter named Elliot Roger. He had Created, uh, carried out a massacre in California 2014, which left six people dead and 14 injured. And this manifesto that he had written had claimed that he did this because women were depriving him of sex. And Alec Manassian talks in detail to Detective Rob Thomas about how Elliot Rogers' actions inspired him to carry out this attack as well. So where does that leave us then, Brianna, when it comes to where is the court case involving Alec Manassian right now? The court case will resume uh, February of 2020. And this is, it's important to note that it will be before a judge alone. And that means that that played into the judge's decision to release this publication ban on the video because no jury will be impacted by seeing or hearing this video ahead of time. All right. So how do you think the video is going over with the public? Like, have you heard any feedback on that? It's exactly what I've what I've heard is exactly what we talked about at the beginning of this um, conversation is how much credit do you want to give to somebody? Can we even call it credit? How much do you want to spread the word about something of this sense? But also hearing that, you know, maybe this will give us some insight about the thoughts from this person. Right. And how could we pre potentially prevent this from happening in the future? And with this, these words around the incel rebellion, I mean, this is something new for a lot of people. So how can we look into this? and perhaps change the mentality of those people right. feeling that way. I think that's a good point, that if, you, if you're looking for a learning opportunity from this, then it is learning about that language that was used here. And if you hear somebody using that language, then you now know that, wait a minute, this, this is problematic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we the, some of that lingo that we have heard, a supreme gentleman, that's what Alec Manassian refers himself to and he, on multiple occasions in the police interrogation video, also on the Facebook post before carrying allegedly carrying out the attack. Um, we hear about obnoxious brutes. Those are the chads, per se, that he talks about. And a chad is a, a man that's... Um, that's of the highest rank, I guess you could say, and the, the attractive women being Stacy's. This jargon is very interesting to learn more about, um, and it, it's really started on what had been social media channels such as 4chan or subreddits that um, Alec Manassian names forever alone. All right, Brianna, thank you very much for updating us on this today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. That is Brianna Carnegie, the network producer for Global News Radio. And exactly as Brianna and I just talked about there, this was a difficult story. I mean, it's in the news, right? This There's going to be some curiosity about this video, but I will say that we did choose not to run any of that audio during this segment while we were talking about it because there is that balance of 
what is the point of this? Are you going to do more harm than good? Are you allowing somebody who potentially did this to have a platform for what they're talking about? Uh, so there is the educational aspect of this kind of balanced with the sensationalness, the sensationalism involved in this. So it's a tough one. Uh, and so as Brianna pointed out, that the reaction has been quite mixed from people because I think as a as a population, Canadians are generally quite apprehensive of going down that kind of route. And I think this is another example of that. Well, we're talking a lot about the protests, the climate strike that's going on today. Of course, it's very youth-oriented, student-oriented. So there are teenagers, kids from, you know, all across BC, really, who are out participating in this today. And we're asking you as parents, too, how you feel about that. Are you okay with it? Do you have a problem with it? And I wanted my point earlier when we were discussing this is, you know what? You probably protested something when you were a teenager. Pretty sure you didn't ask your parents for permission for that because that was made a big issue with this particular climate strike. People who were protesting, um, you know, for the civil rights era didn't ask for permission. Vietnam War, everything in the 80s, like there was, you didn't necessarily ask permission. And Linda wrote me and made an excellent point. Linda said, I believe that civil protest is very important when making changes. She said, at the now New Westminster Secondary School during the early 1960s, Linda says, I was part of a group of girls who walked to school every day in the snow, arriving late at school. By this action, she said, we managed to change the no pants rule for female students. Also in the mid-1960s, she said, the student bus fares were doubled in New Westminster. This time, a much larger group of students marched on City Hall while our parents protested in the evenings. She said, there's old pictures of all these students doing all this. And she said, yes, we had the increase reduced by half. She said, I can't count the number of changes I have been involved in during my 68 years. Young people are the key, she said, even those in elementary school. These students learn about the damage we are doing to our earth in schools. They'll put pressure on their parents. And I thought Linda made a great point in that you've protested something that you were indignant about. And I'm sure you were looked down upon by the adults of that era. And now you think, wow, they had to protest to be able to wear pants at school? Like, that's ridiculous. Back then, it was a very passionate issue for them that wouldn't have gotten changed without student protest. That's what we're talking about today. Now, our contributor, Claire Allen, has been out and about and seeing how these uh, climate strikes are going, and she joins us now. Hi. Hey, Sammy. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, this is a very youth-oriented yes. uh, event. And so I was at City Hall this morning just kind of looking around. And as you heard Nikki Reitmeyer say, it was pretty quiet. But I was there a little bit later than her. She had gone to UBC. And about then, we start, I started to see some students trickle in. But it was still quite early because the rally is expected about 1 p.m. And right. this was about 10, 15 or so. So the first, I spotted a group of young, uh, young boys who had some signs. And so I went over to see, you know, are you guys? here for this rally, One o'clock even rally, though it's yeah. pretty early. And the first um, young man that I spoke to names was Joshua. I'm Joshua. I'm in grade 10. And you go to school where? Uh, Westview Secondary, Maple Ridge. So climate change has been a thing for a while, and we just think it's time politicians actually start paying attention to what the heck, what the heck companies and whatnot are actually doing. And also, so I, I have a father. Um, he doesn't believe in climate change whatsoever. And, you know, our beliefs are the complete opposite and i wanted to do this to show like to like shed some light on the fact that this is a real thing for him and everyone who agrees with him what did your dad think about you participating today he doesn't know 
Aha. Mm -hmm. Also, the other point that I wanted to make today with this is that all this big deal was made leading up to this about get your parents' permission to do this. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how many teenagers are really going to do that? Yeah, I remember we did a walkout in my high school. I can't recall what it was for, but... um, it, uh, You're really I'm, not making the kids' yeah, argument here, Claire. I, I just can't recall how what it was at this moment, but um, we didn't have to get any sort of permission slip right. signed. It might have been about some sort of teacher action at the the teacher strike action at oh, that time. Oh, you know what? Yeah. That happened when I was in junior high school as well. Yeah, I think that's they what cut it was. all of our extracurricular activities mm-hmm. uh, because of it was a strike action. So there's yeah. and that was something that the kids also got out and Walked protested. Out about. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but I do not recall getting my mom to sign a permission slip for me to leave. So, yeah. So. So anyways, I thought that was really interesting what Joshua had to say about the generate sort of the attitude that his dad has about climate change and Joshua's thoughts and how they're completely different and how he wanted to participate today to show his dad that this will impact not only him as a young man, but also his father. Um, And so then I also caught up um, with another kid who was there who was a friend with Joshua and his name was Alex. My name is Alex. And you're in grade 10 as well. Great. And you're also Maple Ridge? Yeah, Maple Ridge. I'm participating mostly because, like, I agree with uh, Josh's thoughts on that. And it's important. Like, the environment is something that it should be around for a long time, but the way the world is going, it won't be. So it should change. Do you think that politicians listen to your generation with your concerns about climate change? I think they do now. Like, the youth are very powerful these days, so we do have a voice and it is being heard. Okay, yeah. Nice to hear because, you know, there is sometimes the stereotype and some people have written me about how, oh, kids just want a day off from school. No, no. A lot of these kids, they know exactly why they're there. And as you heard, Joshua and Alex came from Maple Ridge. So not exactly a short, you know, a short trip. And um, they were very committed. They had signs and they were, as you heard, quite engaged on the issue. Now, I also caught up with some of the climate walkout organizers. Uh, Nia Lee and Samantha Lynn are both in grade 12 and they chatted with me about why they decided to get involved. I'm striking today. I'm organizing. uh, So I kind of have to be here. But also, I think it's just really important to stand in solidarity with frontline communities and the most affected people by the climate crisis. Because here in Vancouver, you know, we're expecting upwards of 15,000 people, but not many of those people will have felt the direct impacts of the climate crisis. And so it's important to stand in solidarity. Samantha? I'm here organizing the strike today along with a lot of other youth across Metro Vancouver because we're coming together, the whole city and Metro Vancouver is coming together today to show our urgency for the climate crisis and that we are demanding uh, climate justice, climate action, Indigenous sovereignty and making climate a priority. They're in grade 12. Yes. I just want people to keep that in mind. Listen yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah they were. Um, so like I said, they were actually involved in sort of organizing the walkout. And so they were there ahead of the rally at 1 p.m., just making sure everything was ready to go. Now, they were both wearing these circular green felt pins on their jackets. Oh. And I well, didn't know what those were. So I asked what the significance of their pins were. So the green pin started in Quebec and now it's becoming an international symbol of support for climate strikes and for stronger climate policy and climate justice. I did not know that either. I'll yes. keep a lookout for those yeah, today. So if you see them, uh, people wearing them, that's what they're for. Okay, so run through this for me again, because even if people out there 
are not participating in this, whatever the case may be, you're still going to be somewhat impacted by this, what's going on today. Yeah, you will definitely see some of the rallies all across Metro Vancouver. And if you want to participate, there are many opportunities for you to participate. So rallies were were held this morning in Port Coquitlam, Pitt Meadows, New West, and Maple Ridge. Students at UBC have already begun to gather outside the bookstore on campus. Nikki Reitmeyer just reported a couple minutes ago that she sees about 3,000 people there. Yeah, so that's a lot. Um, That's that's just UBC. That's just UBC. Yeah, exactly. So um, SFU students are planning to meet at the broad at uh, City Hall, the Canada Line Station at 1230 in Surrey and North Delta. People are planning to meet at 2 p.m. outside of Strawberry Hill Shopping Center. And climate strikers from across Metro Vancouver are expected to meet at Vancouver City Hall, where you just heard Joshua, Alex, Naya and Samantha. And they're meeting at 1 p.m. and they will march across the Canby Street Bridge to downtown Vancouver, then finish on Hamilton Street between Georgia and Robson. Right. So I guess if uh, I'd watch out if you were planning on taking the Millennium Line today. Yes, actually, you bring up that's true because as I was coming back to uh, to the station here uh, at the Vancouver City Center stop, I saw a bunch of kids uh, getting on, and I also saw them getting off at the uh, Broadway City Hall line as well. So I saw a lot of kids they're getting ready to go. Exactly. Yes. Well, you got to use transit. And if they're coming from SFU, I'm thinking they're going to be taking the Millennium Line to get to that yes. Broadway City Hall yes. station, and right? And the B line will be busy too because that's coming from UBC. So there'll be a lot, a lot of young kids that are, you know. With signs and ready to go on transit today, and uh, yeah, if you watch out for that, don't want to get caught up in that, then I would avoid, avoid those, all lines. those areas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you for that, Claire. That Thanks is Claire Allen, our CKNW contributor. Let's talk about what's going on in Oppenheimer Park in Vancouver. This tent city that has come up there over the last few months has really drained a lot of police resources. We heard that from the Vancouver Police Department, right? They said they had something like 700 calls from that area that really has put a strain on the amount of resources and the other policing efforts that they have in the downtown east side. Vancouver Fire and Rescue has also argued that an injunction is needed to clear out the park. And so this was the topic of a vote and a meeting last night at the Vancouver Park Board. And the injunction was defeated. Instead, a majority on the park board reaffirmed their previous position. That is seeking a task force to help solve the problem. So there were two commissioners in particular who voted against this, who really wanted the injunction. And that would be Commissioner John Cooper and Trisha Barker, who joins us now to talk more about that. And thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Simi, for having me. Uh, this was such an interesting meeting last night. Were you disappointed with how the vote went? Um, yes, I was disappointed, but I wasn't surprised. And why is that? Well, uh, the Greens and the COPE, I think that they've been very open about the fact that they didn't want an injunction. What do you think needs to be done down there at Oppenheimer Park? Well, first of all, I want to say that, um, as I said last night, uh, I you know, this homeless situation in our city, I find disgusting. And I don't think anyone should be homeless. And I think we have to fix this. And I don't know how we're going to do it, but I do know it's going to take every level of government to, to work towards it. But that said, I don't think that we should be taking over our parks with a tent city and saying that that's a good situation. Right. And, and you- saying that living in a park is a good situation. And you come from a different point of view on this as well, don't you? Because you've got some experience with this issue. Yes. Um, And as I said last night, and I've been very open about this, when I was younger, I was homeless on and off for three years. And I I also shared 
last night that during that three years, I was also being sexually abused. So everyone does have their own story when we're pointing fingers at people. And sometimes when we say, you don't know what I'm feeling. No, but you don't know what I've gone through either. And so when I talk about an injunction, I say, you know what? You people are saying this would be the worst thing if the police came and cleared us out. But for me, the worst part of my life ended when the police showed up in my situation. And the person sexually abusing me got taken away. And it was years before I actually really got on my feet again. But that was the beginning of me getting to some sense of normal. And so it's, you know, just saying we're going to pull you out of the park, that doesn't end the story. But I think that that can be the start of something that is going to help people in the end. So do you feel that with the situation the way it is now, it's not providing enough help to people? Well, I think that we are offering help to people. And when we first of all cleared out in July the park and we got lots of people homes, that was very positive. That was very good. Um, But there's some people who chose to stay in the park. And now, as the police has explained to us, as the fire department has explained to us, that is bringing in a whole bunch of other people. Uh, There's mayhem down there. There's violence. I don't think we're talking about a homeless situation anymore. I think now we're talking about a violent crime situation. And that's what's got me really concerned. I'm really worried someone's going to get hurt down there in a big way. And I would love to have been able to stop it before a tragedy happened. Have we heard from people in the park on this? Because I remember originally many of the campers had said that they did feel safer down there. Do you think that's changed? Um, you know, we all have our opinions about what is safer, what is not safer. I, you know, yes, some of the people last night said they felt safe and it was a community down there. And um, maybe that is the safest they felt. But does that mean that that is the safest that people should feel? You know, there's guns all over the place. There's weapons. Um, People are trying to stay warm with propane. Um, If that's people feeling safe, then we've really failed. And I would like to ask us all to step up and do something better for everyone. But I will still go back to my position that let's not make living in a park in a tent with some guns the norm in the city. Is there any recognition, though, on the part of the rest of the park board that you're you're doing something the opposite of what the police department and the fire department has asked you to do. Yes. And they don't care about that? Um, Well, you would have to ask them that. But even our park board staff has recommended that we get an injunction. And that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So what is going to happen then? Well, at this point, um, they're allowed to stay in the park. We We will continue to do everything we can to make sure everyone's as safe as we can possibly make them. Uh, We will continue to try to find housing for people. Uh, It will just be what has been going on. That will continue. But as I said, um, my concern, the police's concern, the fire department, all the people I've been talking to is that the criminal element that's come into that area, that's what's making this the critical situation right now. Have you gone down there at all? Yes. And what have you seen when you're down there? Well, um, it's, it's not good. There's uh, belongings everywhere. There's bikes everywhere, pieces of bikes everywhere. There's tents that aren't real tents. There are more canopies, um, people wandering around. Uh, you know, 
it, it's, it is just not a good situation. But also, I've only been down there during the day. I haven't been down there at night and would not go down there at 2 a.m. to go and see what it's like at that point to see the type of people that are um, in that park at that time. Right. Is there, so is there a timeline then for this next effort by the park board to start to get a task force together? And how is that going to work? Well, we're, uh, the city is bringing something forward this week. I'm sure that there'll be more work happening with them. But the park board isn't involved with the homeless situation. We're involved with parks. And so that, is, that gets bounced over to the city. And, um, and that's where we have the big divide. Uh, park board commissioners, we have, we, of course we're aware of the homeless situation, but our parks are not for people to be living in. And we would like to see the city, we would like everyone to come together to make sure people don't have to live in parks. Right. Your, I think your experience is so important to all of this. And when you found yourself homeless, what eventually changed for you? You mentioned your abuser being carted off by police, but after that, was there like, okay, now I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to find a place to live. Like, what was that process like for you? Well, um, I was lucky when that end part, the little end part happened because it was on and off for three years all over the United States and all over Canada that I was homeless. The last part happened was when I was in Toronto and I was able to um, come back to Vancouver, come back to the place I was born. And um, yeah, I, and I started a new life here. But as I explained last night to uh, people, uh, you don't go through that kind of stuff when you're young without having a huge impact on your life. And I have battled depression. I have had a lot of challenges, but I've also been very, very lucky. And I've run into some people who have really helped me out. And because of those people, I'm able to be the person I am today. So I appreciate everyone that did help. But as I said, I also appreciate those people that knocked on the door and came and arrested my abuser. Right. And so do you feel that by saying to people, okay, everybody, like time's up in the park here, we have to move on. Do you think that would provide some kind of impetus for people? Yes. And I think that could be the start of ending a lot of the mayhem. And maybe, and trust me, when that happened to me, I didn't think I would survive that moment. And it took a long time for me to go, oh, wow, that was the beginning of my life changing for the positive. I did not think that at that moment. But as time went on, I can now look back and go, wow, thank goodness. Listen, thank you so much for talking to us about this today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. That is Trisha Barker, Park Board Commissioner, one of two commissioners, along with John Cooper, who tried to get a vote passed last night for an injunction against the people who are camping out in Oppenheimer Park. It failed. Instead, a majority on the Park Board just reaffirmed that previous position of putting together a task force to try to solve the problem. You know, there's a lot of apprehension out there that we are headed for some kind of an economic slowdown. I mean, growth is slowing in countries all over the world, including Canada. And the finances are going to have to adjust to that. Now we're hearing that that is exactly what is happening here in BC. And this is something that Finance Minister Carol James addressed late yesterday as well. Let's hear more about that now with the help of Richard Zussman, our Global News online reporter at the BC Legislature. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. This is a bit of a surprise because we just had the fiscal update recently. 
Yeah, one of the things that Carol James mentioned in that fiscal update was that the province is worried about international issues that could lead to an economic downturn. And I don't want people to panic. James made it very clear that the economy here in BC uh, is leading the way. It's the best in the country. Um, All of that is good news. But one of the things she did not mention was that soon after announcing the first quarter financial numbers, she went to the ministers around the cabinet table that she sits with and said, I want you to look at reducing your discretionary spending. And that means a reduction on uh, unnecessary travel, potential overtime costs, potentially room bookings, and try to find a way to save a substantial amount of money in order to address what we expect will be tough economic times ahead for the province. Right. Okay. Now, this is has this happened before with this particular government? It hasn't. No. And and James said, you know, governments in the past have done it. Governments in the future will do it. But it's the first we've seen. And one of the reasons that's important, Simeon, a great question, is that this government was handed by the previous government a very rosy economic look. You know, there's huge surpluses here in British Columbia. A lot of that bolstered by property transfer taxes because of the overinflated housing market. Mm -hmm. Some of that has dried up. Uh, The province, though, uh, is now trying to look at alternatives in order to uh, either save money because the money isn't coming in, especially around property transfer taxes like it used to. Right. So they're cutting back. Was it 5%? So, no, that number was a rumor that was floated around the UBCM. Ah. Carol James says that number is not true. A 5% cut would equal billions of dollars, Simi, and would lead to, for sure, service cuts for British Columbians. That's not what we're seeing here. This is stuff that's going to take place at the ministry level, but could be a little bit of a sign towards what might come next. If the province is not able to save the sort of money it's looking for through discretionary funds, what does that mean for the budget? Doesn't mean they have to start cutting elsewhere. You know, there are some big bills that are going to come soon for the province. The deal with the teachers will be expensive. Also, we're hearing that uh, ICBC, uh, the province is uh, in court right now around a change at ICBC, which was to restrict the number of expert reports that can be used in settlements. We're hearing that the province thinks they're going to lose that. And that's a $400 million blow to the budget if they lose that court case. And so all of those bills are going to come due pretty soon, Simi, and that's going to have effect on the entire bottom line. And I think discretionary funding reductions are just the first step in what could be uh, some substantial uh, tightening of the bootstraps by this provincial government. And so how much are they hoping then to recover here? Yeah, so overall, they're looking at about the $300 million range. That's a lot of money. And I don't think it's reasonable to think they can save that through discretionary funding. But I think by increased prudence and additional measures, the NDP is trying to get there. Uh, Premier John Horgan just wrapped up his annual speech before the UBCM, uh, and he was asked about the discretionary funding. What he said is his government is being prudent. It's better for them to respond now before a financial disaster comes than to respond once the disaster comes. So he's seeing this as the government looking forward, trying to address what they expect will be an international crisis with some challenges here at home, and then to try to deal with 
uh, additional savings uh, when we figure out what we can save by sort of looking at internally at the ministry uh, ministry budgets. Right. It, it is interesting with the uh, premier speaking at the UBCM because in years past that used to be um, an announcement of some kind. Yeah, always announcements. And yeah. I was I was joking on Twitter that, you know, I remember going to these UBCM speeches with premiers, both Premier Horgan, Premier Clark, and even Premier Campbell, and you would sit down and they would give you a stack of press releases about all the different things they announced. You know, maybe a $10 million fund here all the way up uh, to getting tolls off the Coquihalla or a new Portman Bridge, which yeah. Christy Clark announced there. The The way that the NDP government is doing it is different. They sat down for more meetings than any premier and any ministers have ever sat down for during the week of UBCM. And I think this government will take the information from the hundreds and hundreds of meetings they had and build that into budget 2020. So instead of you know, assuming to know what the municipalities want and announcing it only a matter of days after meeting with them, they will take the thoughts and comments from the meetings with communities, think about it, and then apply it going forward. I think that's actually a pretty good right. strategy. It's it's better, I think, than just guessing what municipalities want and spending a whack of money. <laughs> but it does mean that the UBCM speeches turn into more of a stand-up routine than any substantive policy oh. announcement. Was it lots of jokes? Is that what it was? Oh, man, Sammy. And bad was, comedy? Bad comedy. There was a joke about David Eby doing yoga. There was a joke about... <laughs> pot consumed in the Gulf Islands and the Kootenays. And the one thing that really went out of control was this conversation about a duck named Cisco from Fort St. James. And apparently the duck used to be in the chicken races and would always win, but now the duck has died. And so Horgan bet on the duck, but there was no duck. Uh, I hope the viewers aren't as confused as I was when Horgan was telling (laughs) that joke. But I joked as well on social media, the biggest announcement from the UBCM speech is we now know Cisco the Duck in Fort St. James has died. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, was there any, though, discussion uh, about the Rural Dividend Fund? Yeah. Because I know there'd been some controversy yeah. over this. So Premier Horgan was asked that numerous times in the scrum afterward. He dedicated about half his speech to the forestry industry. Uh, he thanked the truckers for coming to Vancouver. He said it's a very powerful symbol, sends a strong message. He said the Rural Dividend Fund is on a curtailment right now. It will return when the money's there, but the focus now is on the forestry community, and that's why they wanted to move the money from the Rural Dividend Fund to uh, the um, funding for forestry. Right. Uh, the UBCM passed a unanimous motion to ask the provincial government to restore the funding immediately to the dividend fund. That's not going to happen. Uh, but Horgan was very, he said, we were have been as forthright as possible. We've been open as possible of why we've done this. And we believe the most pressing issue in the province right now is the effects on the forestry communities and families affected. And that's why we're dedicating the resources there. Okay, so there wasn't, in the end, a lot to talk about uh, at the UBCM this yeah. week, right? Lots of lots of topics came up. Yeah, l- lowering the voting age to 16 yeah. was an issue brought up. Horgan said what the province is doing is trying to get people registered to vote as soon as they can. Uh, no movement on that yet. Also discussion about uh, permanent residents being able to vote in municipal elections. So if you're not a Canadian, but you're a permanent resident. Uh, discussions about vaping, you know, that's been a massive yeah. issue. And Washington State has announced some significant uh, movement on that. Uh, Horgan said that health 
Minister Adrian Dix is looking at legislation here. Expect something soon in British Columbia on that. So some major issues that make a difference in people's day-to-day lives or things that first come up at UBCM. You know, the big one of my favorites, daylight saving time. Oh, boy. And going to permanent daylight saving time was first an initiative at UBCM, Simi. Uh, and now we're getting close to potentially seeing that change. So, you know, things, these conversations start yeah. with the municipal leaders around the table. They get the attention of provincial governments and then federal governments. And that's how change happens. So it's all always really interesting to hear the topics that emerge as the big ones at UBCM, because a few years down the road, they're normally the ones that we see change on. So true. Richard, thank you. Thanks, Amy. That is Richard Dussman, our Global News online reporter at the BC Legislature. Well, Richard just mentioned this while we were talking to him, but over in Washington State, just across the border from us here, uh, they are now joining several other states in moving forward with banning the sale of flavored vaping products. And this, of course, has made all this concern over the mysterious lung illness that has sickened hundreds. We're talking, I think the number is now up to more than 800 people and killed more than a dozen across the United States. So Washington Governor Jay Inslee issued an executive order this morning asking their Department of Health to issue the emergency rule at its next meeting that is scheduled for October the 9th. And that ban, it's an emergency ban, is going to apply to products containing nicotine as well as the cannabis extract THC. Now, Jay Inslee says the flavored products especially appeal to youth. Now, the Trump administration has also announced some plans to ban flavored vaping products nationally. New York, Michigan, Rhode Island... They're also among the states that have instituted at least temporary bans. Massachusetts, meanwhile, has gone the farthest. They've issued a four-month ban on all vaping products until they can find out more. But here's what Washington Governor Jay Inslee had to say in the last hour. We know that there is a action causing this problem, and that is the predatory marketing by this industry to our children, intentionally trying to addict them to various products and using flavoring to do so. These kids get hooked, and they get hooked for life. So many products in this industry are targeting children. They are flavoring products with flavors attractive to our children, bubblegum, raspberry, cinnamon, and the like. These flavors exist for one reason, and one reason only, and that is to make them more appealing to young children. These products are also packaged in a way to appeal to young children. Meanwhile, we've got some numbers as well uh, from the Fraser Health Authority on how high school students in BC are consuming these products. Joining us now to talk more about that is Dr. Ingrid Tyler, the medical health officer with Fraser Health. Dr. Tyler, thank you for being here. Um, hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. So what do we know about how y- high school students are using these products? Um, Yeah, so our data is still a bit limited on high school students, actually, but the McCreary Centre released uh, some really interesting information earlier this year that was telling us that 21% of youth in grades 7 to 12 are vaping in BC. So that's about one in five high school students are uh, regularly vaping. Um, When we uh, go to schools and deliver programs about vaping, which uh, we've we've been doing a, a lot at Fraser Health to educate students and, and staff and parents about this uh, product and, and the potential risks of it. Uh, anecdotally, uh, we hear from kids that it, it is probably more than that just based on the amount right. of, uh, of the vapor that, that they see in their schools. Right, because this is the survey that you were using there. They're self-reporting for that survey, right? 
Yes, exactly. That's a uh, survey that uh, students fill out every four years, and they 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 just answer it and they they self report. They write down uh, yes or no, and I I can understand maybe maybe some some kids aren't willing to um, to admit to that in an official way. Uh, because we do see a lot of this behavior. Right. What are some of the anecdotal concerns that you've also heard about here? Um, Yeah, and speaking with uh, teachers and partners in school districts, we're hearing that uh, children are are vaping in classrooms, that they're vaping in bathrooms, that it's quite a distraction uh, in the school. And we're hearing that uh, students are getting addicted, um, that some uh, kids need to go out and have nicotine in between classes, or they, or they're, you know, ready for another, another smoke at at lunchtime when they're let out of class because nicotine is a highly addictive substance, and um, and uh, vaping is uh, essentially a nicotine delivery device. Wow. So, uh, how do we tackle this problem then, Dr. Tyler? What do you think? That's a very good question, actually. I I do know we've been doing a lot about education, and the province uh, is continuing to work on an action plan uh, around uh, vaping, particularly vaping in youth. I do think that uh, education continues to be the key. Um, We need to denormalize this behavior um, we need to teach. We need to explain to parents and students in the public um, what uh, some of the the risks are, um, and these risks are becoming more and more apparent every day. As um, you you had just mentioned, in terms of the uh, the deaths and uh, vaping related illnesses that they're seeing many of in the states and uh, starting to see in Canada, we are learning a lot about the short-term risks of vaping, we still don't have uh, much information because it's such a new phenomenon about what might happen 10 or 20 or 50 years in the future to those who are um, choosing to vape today. It's almost like we are creating some kind of future health crisis with this. Uh, yeah, we have it. We have no way, no way of knowing. And the immediate um, health crisis is just uh, evolving. Dr. Tyler, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you for having me. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Ingrid Tyler, Medical Health Officer with the Fraser Health Authority. The Where We Live series has been so great. I've been hearing about so many interesting and neat places that I had not heard before. And now we have another one for you today. As a matter of fact, you may not have heard about this one. It's in the southern part of Richmond. There's a place that it feels like when you go there, and I've been there, so I totally get this feeling, but you feel like the world has kind of forgotten about that place where you are right at that moment. It's called Finn Slough, and it is lovely. And Eric Chapman took a trip out there. I want to go back to my little grass shack in Lulu Island. Named by Richard Moody in 1862 after a popular showgirl named Lulu Sweet from Hawaii. Also home to the city of Richmond, where you'll find the night market and a bunch of other cool stuff, including a casino that allegedly laundered a crap ton of money. (laughs) Richmond is known for its cultural diversity. 
One of the issues of the past has been the Cantonese or Mandarin-only signs on businesses. With large Filipino, East Indian, and Japanese communities, there is one culture that's synonymous with Richmond. The Finns. Okay, it's, it's not well known, and there are not a whole lot of Finnish people in Richmond, but they do have a history, and some of that history is still available for you to have a look at today. In the south of Richmond, there's a neighborhood named Gilmore that brews some of the finest Fuggles and Warlock craft beer to the east and bordered by the legendary Steveston docks to the west. There's basically a lot of farmland in Gilmore, but if you drive down the number four road all the way to the end, you'll find a little known place. Cross the dike road and you have arrived in another time. Finslu was originally a small Finnish fishing community. Say that four times fast. Funny how the road ends at the finish. What is it like? Director Stephen Hannon talked to some inhabitants in the last of the river people. The village wouldn't exist without the Fraser River. This village was designed to be on the edge, to be on in, in the transition between land and water. That's what this place is. It's a transitional place um, between water on the one side and land on the other, you know, and we're right in the middle between those two. It was established in early 1890 by a group of Finnish people and has remained almost exactly the same since their arrival. You hear, I mean, I can hear people when they walk along the dike over there and they're, you know, the little kids are saying, do people live in those places? Do they, yeah. And uh, and dad says, yeah, they live there, you know, and because they couldn't imagine it because they're living in some suburban house with uh, all the amenities and uh, and it's a different lifestyle. They rely on the river in every sense of the word. The river, <laughs> the tide especially, sort of governs what you can and can't do. Um, the tide's out. You can't get the boat out. You can't go out to enjoy the river uh, physically. Um, the river has brings so much stuff in it brings the wood to fix the path <laughs> somebody upriver is careless with their when they're repairing their docks and and uh, things and they, the the planks come down so you you, you uh, just fish the planks out of the river to reuse on the path it's nice to know that not too far from the bustle and hustle of the cities there's a place that managed to escape the encroaching world around us and let us know that it's not undefeatable and we can still find some quiet peace not too far from home. We're going to update you now on the climate strike protest that is happening. It's a march. It is a gathering. It's a lot of things right now. And it's also, I'm getting the impression, bigger than what many people expected it to be. This morning when we talked about it, we'd heard that the activists themselves who'd planned this, who were grade 12 students, thought they were, you know, expecting about 10 to 15,000 people. It sounds like right now it's more like 20, 25,000 people and the numbers are still growing. Now, TransLink has been running some special buses uh, quite a bit this afternoon, directly from other locations to the gathering at City Hall, so that 
leaving UBC was much faster as opposed to getting on the regular transit and stopping and, and going along the way. But it is still very, very busy out there. Even with all those added buses, it is still quite a crowd. And there's still apparently hundreds of people at UBC who are waiting to get to the uh, Vancouver City Hall location. And it's not just Vancouver. People are coming from other parts of Metro Vancouver. We've heard from, you know, kids in Metro Van- or Maple Ridge, I should say, who uh, came directly to Vancouver City Hall and more uh, but essentially, they're now going to be starting their movement uh, down Camby Street, over the Camby Street Bridge, and into downtown Vancouver. Now, this, of course, is happening all over Canada today. We are seeing it happen in big cities like Montreal. I just saw some pictures actually on BC One of what the protest and rally looks like in Toronto as well, where they're gathering outside of it looks like Queen's Park there. And it is a very sizable crowd. As for Montreal, they're talking hundreds of thousands of people in Montreal who have turned out for this. And then of course, with the election going on, there are different political party leaders who are also involved. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is expected to attend the rally in Victoria, which by the way, the rally in Victoria, the turnout's pretty impressive as well. It covers the lawn of the BC legislature at this point. Uh, And you've got Justin Trudeau and Elizabeth May both attending the uh, one in Montreal. That's That's where they are today. You've been hearing about that in the news. And you wonder, okay, well, what about... Andrew Scheer, where is the conservative leader? Well, he's not attending any of the climate strike protests or anything like that today. He is continuing on with the campaign. He does happen to be in Metro Vancouver. He has just actually been having a press conference uh, and talking about um, CO2 emissions and that kind of thing. But he's talking about expanding infrastructure, not in terms of kind of a climate change issue. So there'll be more on that to come on the news today. But right now, lots of attention focus. Like even if you're trying to get around Metro Vancouver, it's good to know all of this kind of stuff uh, because it will definitely tangle up the drive for a lot of people. Uh, So they're going to start moving. Now, our global news reporter, Sushi Gangdev, is kind of down there in the middle of everything. We wanted to check in with her and find out how things are going. And Sushi joins us now. Hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, where are you right now? I am in the thick of it here. Uh, we're right here at Vancouver City Hall. There's, I would say, at least five or 6,000 people here with more expected to join, and we're just waiting for things to get started. Okay, so the crowd has seriously grown then. Is it spilling out onto the streets? I can't even see the streets to tell you, to be honest. Everywhere I look, there's people. <laughs> okay, and what, what's the crowd like, Srishti? Like, is it a lot of kids, do you think? Are there signage? Like, what are you seeing? There's tons of kids. I don't want to say that it's only kids because there's a lot of people. I'm seeing signs that say, I want to save my grandkids. But there are, I've spoken to a lot of elementary school kids. I've spoken to one 12-year-old who says he's been researching climate change since he was seven. Wow, that's impressive. All right. So then what's going to happen? Are they going to be hearing any speakers or anything right now? The speakers are just about to get started here. I think there's going to be a drumming circle to start things off and, uh, and then a few speakers. Right. So have you had a chance to talk to people as well about what made them come out here today? Yeah. What they're all telling me is that they want world leaders to do something. And I've heard that people agree that, you know, they should be giving up plastic straws and things like that. But more important to to send that to them is that they want action taken by governments to reduce emissions and to reduce uh, greenhouse gases and fossil fuels. Right. So there's a lot of people who are very serious about this there. Then there are young people who are very serious about this topic. Definitely. They've all done their research. Sounds like it. Okay. So then it's good. give me an idea of what's going to happen then this afternoon. 
We've, uh, we're starting here at Vancouver City Hall. The idea is to walk over to, I believe, Georgia and Hamilton. So quite the walk. And from what I'm hearing on social media, there are people joining in at every step of the way. So there's thousands of other people across the city. Oh boy, sounds like you're going to be busy then, Srishti. So we'll let you yeah. know. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from you throughout the afternoon today. Thank you. Thank you. That is Srishti Gangdev, our global news reporter, who, as you heard, is right in the middle of things. She said she can't even see the street.